Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a cardiothoracic surgeon explains how a minimally invasive procedure can fix atrial fibrillation. AFib sort of forms a circle of current, and what ablation does is it puts lines across these circles such that the current can no longer travel in a circle, and that heart then only is capable of being in sinus rhythm. A neurosurgeon discusses treatment options for adults with epilepsy. About 65% of patients can be controlled with medication. When medication doesn't work, that's when we move to other treatments such as surgery. And a transplant surgeon discusses advances in kidney transplants over the past 50 years. When I started to perform kidney transplant, the immunology of transplant was really maybe 10 pages. Now it's thousands of pages. All that plus a visit from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear from three surgeons. A neurosurgeon discusses treatments for adults with epilepsy. Then a transplant surgeon talks about the 1,000th kidney transplant at Upstate University Hospital. But first, a cardiothoracic surgeon explains how a minimally invasive procedure can fix atrial fibrillation. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A surgeon at Upstate offers an advanced treatment for atrial fibrillation, and Dr. Stephen Waterford is at HealthLink on Air to tell us about it. Thank you for making time, Dr. Waterford. Well, thank you for having me on again. I appreciate it. Now, we're going to talk about this. It's called the TT maze ablation, but first, let me ask you to give sort of a brief description of atrial fibrillation. What is AFib? Yeah, AFib is an irregular rhythm of the heart that... Um, about five or six million Americans have and can develop from aging or also other associated conditions. And the principal risk of this abnormal rhythm is you can feel short of breath or lightheaded or can have a stroke uh, develop from it. Uh, so those are the main uh, problems with it. So how would you know if you have this? I mean, other than if you have shortness of breath or something, is are there other signs that would alert a person that they've developed this, you know, over that over time. Some people will have palpitations, and they will actually feel their heart racing when they're in a fib. I would say that's the minority of patients, and um, the majority are discovered just incidentally by their doctor when they get an EKG of the heart. And then the final answer I would say is that there are now monitoring devices that go with people's iPhones. Uh, so the Cardia app or there are other ones, and people can actually put their fingers on pads and actually see if they have AFib. So I've started to see patients who have discovered they've had AFib using some of the more modern technologies uh, integrated with phones. Wow, interesting. Yeah. All right, so that's something everyone sort of needs to have in the back of their mind then. Correct. And we say amongst us all as doctors that if we as a doctor had AFib, it'd be the first thing we tried to get rid of because we've okay, seen so okay. many patients have problems with it. So we're, as a community ourselves, we're sort of uh, the hypervigilant ones that try to get rid of it when we have it. Well, let me ask you about treatments, because does everyone who have has AFib, does everyone need treatment? Yeah, so I would say that um, for some people, there are sort of a couple different avenues of treatment for everybody. One is to try to control the rate of the AFib. So you're not going to try to get rid of the rhythm. You're just going to try to manage it by making sure it doesn't go too fast. The other strategy is called rhythm control, where you actually try to abolish the AFib rhythm and get it back into sinus rhythm. And so those are the two main pathways for treatment of AFib. And I would say most people, generally, it's advisable to have something done, unless you're only in AFib a few minutes a day or something like that. So when you said sinus rhythm, that's the normal heart rhythm. It's called a sinus rhythm? Exactly. And it just comes from a part of the heart called the sinus node that uh, just carries that name. 
Well, it sounds like each of these cases may be very different depending on the type of rhythm, the other problems the patient might have. I mean, it seems like it's going to kind of call for an individualized treatment. Yeah, you're right, because um, AFib is incredibly complex in the sense that some people need rate control, some people need rhythm control, and still others need the stroke risk reduced from the AFib. And that can be done by a watchman device, which can be put in by a cardiologist or by a surgeon like myself that can get rid of that part of the heart from the outside of the heart. And that reduces or eliminates in many cases the risk of stroke from AFib. So you're correct that there's a, it's, it's, a, there's a, it's a complex area, actually. Well, your watchman device, is that a pacemaker or does that, what does that do? So basically, it's, um, it's not a pacemaker, which uh, is basically required if you have sort of too slow of a heart rate, uh, for instance. Um, and some people with AFib do have that. When they go in and out of AFib, when they come out of it, their heart rate's so slow, they need a pacemaker to back them up. The Watchman device, there's a little portion of the heart called the appendage. And just like you have an appendix and you sort of, you know, can get appendicitis, well, this appendage can get clot in it. And that clot can then move off and go to the brain. So the Watchman device is placed inside the appendage and closes it off, almost like shutting the door to a room so that things can't go in and out of that room and make clot. And then as a surgeon, I can also put a fabric clip on the outside of it that clips it closed so that no blood can ever go in there. So there are just a couple different ways that you can remove the appendage. And that's what we as physicians are so vigilant about. Like we ourselves, I've known several doctors who have sent themselves for a watchman or for a clip um, simply because they don't wanna have a stroke from it. And what I would like to say, Amber, is that strokes from AFib are worse than strokes from any other cause because wow. the blood clots are larger. And so when those move off, you can you know, knock out an arm or a leg. It can be really bad strokes. And that's one of the reasons in the beginning I said we as doctors want to get rid of the appendage in ourselves when, if we discover we're in AFib. I've heard of a treatment called ablation. If AFib continues to be a problem for someone, if medications don't work, what is the concept behind ablation as a treatment? Just as you pointed out, it's really used as a treatment for people who haven't had medications work to control the AFib and bring them into sinus rhythm. And an ablation simply describes the cauterization or freezing. So you can either heat it or cool it. And those marks in the heart prevent the current from being conducted in a manner that generates AFib. And the simplest way I can say to explain it to people is AFib sort of forms a circle of current and it just goes around and around in a circle. And what ablation does is it puts lines across these circles such that the current can no longer travel in a circle. And that heart then only is capable of being in sinus rhythm instead of in AFib if the ablation is successful. So it just blocks the current. It, Correct. it just phys physically creates it's, a barricade. That's exactly right. It's like building a wall on, on your property between two other properties. People can't go from one yard to the next. Well, the current can't go from one yard to the next and generate AFib. And the ablations can either be done by a cardiologist called an electrophysiologist who specializes in that area of the heart or can be done by a surgeon like myself. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with cardiothoracic surgeon Dr. Stephen Waterford about an advanced treatment for AFib called the TT maze. So let's talk about the TT maze ablation specifically. It's described as minimally invasive. What does that mean? So the TT maze is minimally invasive because it makes very small incisions that are a centimeter or less in the chest and does the entire ablation through small incisions using the assistance of a video camera. And it does not use any incisions in the body. So other minimally invasive heart surgery often uses a eight centimeter incision. Here there's only one centimeter or less incisions in the chest. The other reason it's minimally invasive is it does not use a heart lung machine. So for many forms of heart surgery, the heart stopped and started and that's what keeps people in the hospital for a week after heart surgery. With this procedure, the heart's left beating the whole time and it's full of blood and it's ejecting its own blood, just like when you're talking to someone or sitting in a chair and so forth. So while you're having that heart procedure, the heart's beating the whole time. So people tend to go home after a couple of days. 
So are you just accessing the outside of the heart? Yes, that is um, very true. So we use specialized devices that are called radio frequency devices, and they're similar to what's used with catheterization, but they're um, a bit more powerful. So therefore, the TT maze is a good procedure for people who have failed a catheter ablation or for people who have been in atrial fibrillation for more than a year because we know that catheter ablation is often not effective for those patients who have failed catheter ablations before or have been in it for more than a year. So this procedure, because we're able to use more powerful devices, is a great option for those patients. Is there anyone with AFib who would not be a candidate for this procedure? Yeah, so I would say that if you're in and out of AFib, you don't, you're not in it all the time, then the best thing for those patients is either medication or a catheter ablation, because usually catheter ablation works for that type of AFib, which is technically called paroxysmal AFib, but just means you're in and out of it. Those can usually be dealt with with a catheter-based procedure by a cardiologist. Well, let me ask you, if you could, walk us through what a patient could expect if they're going to have a TT maze procedure. Are there things they're going to have to do ahead of time? Yeah, so typically for those patients, we like to get a stress test. Just make sure that they don't have any evidence of coronary artery disease by being on a treadmill for 10 minutes and so forth. And then getting a CAT scan of the chest because we want to know the anatomy of the vein. So we just like to do a CAT scan of the chest for that reason. Um, other than that, they can just show up on the morning of surgery. Uh, they go to sleep. Procedure takes about three hours in total. The key parts of it are about an hour and a half. And then the breathing tubes removed at the end of the procedure and they go back upstairs to a regular bed and usually stay for a couple days. And when they wake up, they have a chest tube on both sides of the chest, just one on the left, one on the right. Those are usually removed the day after surgery. And then the day after that, they'd go home. So I've seen a description that in this procedure, the doctor creates a pattern of scar tissue. So what else can you tell me about the pattern that you use? Is it the same for each patient or how do you decide? People have tried to map AFib and come up with individualized ablation. But what they found is that your AFib on one day can look different than it does on another day. So what they found was the best way to do a thorough ablation is to create a standard template of lesions that addresses all the different possible circuits of current. And that was first developed where I did my heart surgery fellowship in St. Louis in 1987, and it's called the Mays procedure. And so the Mays procedure has sort of a defined set of, of lesions or burns or scar tissue that's created, almost like the scaffolding on the outside of a building. So you walk by a lot of different buildings and you see that same scaffolding they put up. Well, this is like that. It's like putting up the same scaffolding that treats that AFib. And that's been found in long-term studies that doing a standard set of ablations gives you the best long-term success. And that's what we see with surgery for AFib. So that's why I recommend ultimately surgeries because we can get to the point of being 80% successful. Whereas with a lot of catheter ablations for long-standing AFib, you're looking at maybe 20 or 50% and sometimes with multiple ablations. So if a patient is in AFib before the surgery and then they, they have the procedure, how how soon are they out of AFib? Does that happen as soon as you? Well, I will tell you my policy is I don't let anyone leave the operating room in AFib. So, um, so by the end of the procedure, I would say it's a rare patient, but over 95% are in sinus rhythm at the end of the procedure, which is gratifying. And, um, you know, we like to try to keep it that way by having people take some medicine to suppress anything for a few months. If they're still not in AFib at a few months and they just stop taking medicines and that's, which is really the goal of the procedure. So will they feel when they wake up in the hospital, will they feel a difference generally? Yeah, actually some patients do notice. In fact, uh, the first uh, patient that I did at Upstate did wake up that way and said that he felt much better right away. So that was a patient who was particularly attuned to his AFib. Um, for other people, they'll notice an increase in energy level a decrease in shortness of breath, and then just a certain relief that they know they're not going to have a stroke. Because with the TT maze, I always clip off that stroke center of the heart called the appendage. Um, so that's really the goal is to be off medications, 
feeling better. And often if you get ultrasounds of the heart after you do this, the pump actually gets stronger because AFib will weaken the pump of the heart. So wow. there's a lot of different benefits of people can feel better, feel less short of breath, not be taking rhythm control medications. And then finally, be off their Coumadin or Eliquis or Xarelto off the blood thinners they were on. Because once I've clipped the appendage, you don't need to be on blood thinners in the long run. Wow. Now, is there any chance that AFib would redevelop later in the future? So about 20% will have more than 30 seconds a day of AFib. About 5% will still be in AFib. So 95% will not be in AFib constantly. And that's really the best success that we have. There's no 100% for AFib, but getting up into those percentages is pretty, pretty good. And I'll say that even for that small fraction that failed, the great news is they still don't have to take Coumadin or Eliquis or any blood thinner to prevent a stroke because I've already gotten rid of the appendage. And to me, that's half the benefit for me, in my view. Mm, that is good news. Now, how would you instruct listeners to get in touch with you if they think they would be a candidate for this procedure? Should, should they question. just call? Well, good question. Actually, we do have a new AFib phone line, which is 315-500-AFib. Um, oh. Very easy to remember. So any patient can call um, in that number, which is 315-500-AFib uh, and get in touch with us at any time. And so um, that, that phone number is staffed by, you know, very knowledgeable uh, people. And, and it really comes straight to me as well. And I work with electrophysiologists. And so we have a team approach so that if someone's better for a catheter ablation, they can still call that 500 AFib number, and they will get in touch with the proper electrophysiologist. So that's what we're trying to do really at Upstate is make sure that, you know, it's not about my, I don't have any specific goal to operate on, on patients. My goal is really that that patient gets in touch with a proper physician, whether that's an EP doctor or a cardiologist who can manage their medicines, or me if it's a particularly bad case of AFib. So we really work as a team. It's, it's myself and Dr. Bohini. Dr. Chowdhury, so Dr. Bohini is an electrophysiologist, Dr. Chowdhury is the chair of cardiology now. So all three of us really work together to decide, oh, maybe that person needs a watchman, maybe this person needs an ablation, maybe that person needs surgery. Yeah, well, very good. Thank you so much to Dr. Stephen Waterford. He's an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate and he specializes in cardiothoracic surgery. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, how epilepsy may be treated surgically. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A comprehensive epilepsy center provides a comprehensive team approach to the diagnosis and treatment of epilepsy. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Harish Babu. He's an assistant professor of neurosurgery, part of Upstate's comprehensive epilepsy center team, and also the director of minimally invasive neurosurgery at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Babu. Thanks, Amber. It's my pleasure to talk to you on HealthLink. Well, we're going to focus on epilepsy treatment options for adults, but I would first like to have you give us an overview of what epilepsy is. How many people are affected? You know, uh, talking about epilepsy, worldwide, there's about, it's said about 65 million people are affected. And in the U.S. alone, that's said to be roughly around 3.4 to 3.5 million people. That comes to about 1 in 26 people. And... Uh, it's, it's thought that about uh, 150,000 new cases of epilepsy are, are added each year. So that's the, roughly the scope of uh, the epilepsy uh, incidents in the U.S. At what age does it typically develop? You know, uh, it can develop at any age, but we do see two sort of general peaks. Uh, one is uh, somewhere below 30 years of age, and the other is above 65 and uh, that about 65 is largely uh, a testament to uh, people living longer. And uh, that is related to uh, increase in stroke and brain tumor that is uh, largely we see in a 
in the older population. Does this uh, does epilepsy run in families, or is it um, is it predictable who's going to develop epilepsy? There, there is a, a genetic predisposition to epilepsy in some patients, um, but a vast majority of the epilepsy, uh, we do not think it runs in families. Um, there are genetic epilepsies, but they are not the most common ones we see uh, we see in 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 the in community. So typically speaking, how do most people learn that they have epilepsy? Yeah. So usually they they go to their primary doctor or maybe a neurologist. Um, they they have a symptom of sometimes they they you know the blackout or they lose consciousness or sometimes they just have a frank epilepsy seizure, which is you know um, moving their arms and legs without without having consciousness. Uh, and that gets them to the hospital, or, or as I said, it could be simply they, they blank out, they space out, so to say, and that gets them uh, to the medical attention. And when their primary doctors, uh, you know, work them up, they notice that they might have epilepsy. So once there's the suspicion, how is epilepsy diagnosed in a person? Yeah, it it, uh, it is. There is no blood test to diagnose. Uh, an epilepsy or a seizure disorder, uh, as in lots of other diseases. Epilepsy is an electrical, abnormal electrical activity of the brain. So there, so some tests has to be done related to that. And routinely what we do is something called as an EEG, an electroencephalogram. That in, in plain English, that means uh, studying the brain activity. And uh, the, when you have an epilepsy, uh, the brain activity looks different compared to a normal brain activity. And that is the most common way to diagnose an epilepsy is change in the brain activity while doing an EEG test. Uh, this are routinely done in a, in a neurologist's office on a big hospital or an epilepsy center like at the upstate. So if somebody has one seizure and they're suspected to have epilepsy, uh, I mean, is one seizure enough for the diagnosis? If you do an EEG and you you see changes in their brain, does that mean they, they're diagnosed with it? They have epilepsy. Sure. So there are there is some confusion about about the terminologies in terms of seizure and epilepsy. Now a seizure is an event. A uh, seizure is an abnormal um, synchronous or a collective discharge of the brain cells. It is like a storm in your brain, an electrical storm in your brain. Epilepsy, on the other hand, is when you have repeatedly, when you have these seizures, that's when you call epilepsy. So seizure is an event and epilepsy is a disease. I see. Yeah. So so um, when you say that, you know, uh, is there something that, that uh, causes seizures or something um, when it is not something that that ca you can easily say that something specifically has caused a seizure or an epilepsy um, one seizure does not lead to an epilepsy a single seizures are common uh, any insult to the brain any trauma to the brain can result in a seizure does not generally mean that has to that will become epilepsy. Um, in the younger age group, in the kids, seizures are common. Uh, but that does not mean they have an epilepsy disorder. Let me ask you, does epilepsy affect the whole brain or only certain areas? No, epilepsy or seizure disorder usually starts in a small part of the brain. Um, wherever that quote-unquote damage to the brain has happened and where the brain is not happy. That irritated part of the brain starts a seizure, but over a period of time, it can damage a larger part of the brain. And uh, we think this is related to, it is something when constantly there is a storm in your brain, you can imagine not just that area, but the area around it also gets, gets affected. And what we know is that if you leave seizures or epilepsy long enough, they will recruit other areas of the brain. So what was one point of seizure now has more than one points 
more than one points of seizure. So that becomes a lot more difficult to treat. So to your question, is there only one part of the brain or more areas? Yes, initially there is just one part, but over a period of time, if left untreated, more parts of the brain can be recruited into, this, into, into the epilepsy. And that's when it, things get a little difficult uh, treating them. Uh, it's a lot easier and better outcome if the patients can be treated earlier. If, if a patient is candidate for surgery, if you can do this, help them with surgery earlier, they tend to have a much better outcome than patients who have, who have had decades of seizures uh, without, without any treatment. Wow. Well, in terms of treatment, do most people take medicine to control epilepsy? Yeah. So just like in most things in medicine, the first way to treat any problem is through medication, if, that, if, if you need it. Um, and about 60%, uh, 65% uh, of patients can be controlled uh, with medication. It's about 35 to 40% of the patients in whom they cannot be controlled in medication. And that, or that we can talk about what we do about them. But the first line of treatment is medication. It, when medication doesn't work, that's when we move to other uh, you know, non-medicine non related uh, treatments such as surgery or so. So is that the point where you would recommend someone maybe consult with a comprehensive epilepsy center if they have epilepsy that's not controlled with medication? Correct. Yeah. So, you know, usually uh, seizures or epilepsy can be very well controlled uh, by, your, by your primary doctor or say the, or your local neurologist. And they are very good at controlling, as we, as I said, you know, most seizures can be controlled with medication. Now, once, once you start to jump through those medication, and typically we say, if you have tried two medications, but you're still having seizures, that's the time when you should consider like a comprehensive epilepsy center like here at Upstate. And rarely, you know, you have patients who may be very well controlled on two medications or one medication, but the side effect of those medications are so bad that, uh, again, they may be candidates to be sent to comprehensive epilepsy center to try to try to change medications, or maybe, you know, they have reasons which maybe a surgery can help them better. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with neurosurgeon Harish Babu. He's a member of Upstate's Comprehensive Epilepsy Center team. Well, let me ask you, if, if medicines don't work or if the side effects are intolerable for a person and surgery becomes an option, can you talk to me about what people are good candidates for surgery and, and how the surgery is done? Mm -hmm. um, uh, people whom we can localize their seizures or epilepsy. By that, I mean, if there is one spot in the brain that generates their seizures and we can localize them, they are very good candidates for surgery. And by that, I mean, is that if we remove that part of the brain, that little small part of the brain that is generating seizures, theoretically, they should be seizure free and they would be excellent candidates for surgery. And if the seizures are generated from more than one areas, then we would say that they are not ideal candidates for surgery. Now, this is not something that we can just say off the bat, just by looking at a patient. We have to do multiple tests to say that. So surgery is not something that we take lightly, but it is one of the best options for curing a patient for, for epilepsy. Well, what are the sort of preparations that a patient would have before epilepsy surgery? I know you mentioned a lot of testing. Are there other things that you tell them to do in, to prepare? When a patient would come to a place like Comprehensive Epilepsy Center, uh, our goal would be, the broad goal would be to localize a seizure. And, and that includes, you know, um, includes a variety of tests, things like, you know, we would have them do a long-term EEG. That is, they would be in the hospital for one or two days, uh, trying to record continuously the brain waves, and so that we can we can record seizures that we may miss in the night or some other time 
uh, if they are happening. Uh, we can do uh, advanced imaging studies. Sometimes they can show the areas that might that might uh, be involved in seizures. And sometimes we also do surgeries to localize a seizure, not really to remove the seizure, to localize a seizure, to know where exactly the seizure is coming from. Now, they are the candidates whom we think that potentially they will benefit from removing a small part of the brain where the seizure is coming from, but we don't know exactly where that is. So we would, we would do surgery to localize a seizure. And after that, we can remove that part of the brain that is causing a seizure. And obviously we wanna do that keeping in mind that we don't want to remove an area of the brain that might be important for their memory, for their thought process, for their language, for speech, for movement, arms or legs. And we, we would do this, uh, all the tests to make sure that we don't hurt the patient. And our goal is just to remove the area of the brain that is causing seizures. Now you said a small uh, piece of the mm -hmm. brain, like how small is small? Yeah, it can be anywhere from, from size of a pea uh, to two or three times that size. So that depends upon each individual, how, how, where the seizures are coming from and what part of the brain is, is involved in. Uh, typically, most common, uh, most common um, seizures are related to something called as temporal lobe epilepsy. Now, in that, the area of the brain, the hippocampus, and what we call as the medial temporal lobe is involved in, in seizures. For those, we would remove a relatively, uh, you know, bigger than a pea size uh, of the brain. And, and that, that is done after, after, you know, doing several tests to make sure that that part of the brain is the one that causes seizure and that does not have any other, any other function attached to that part of the brain. Uh, because seizures have so much damaged that part of the brain that they don't have any more function in that area of the brain. How long does an operation like you're describing take typically? Uh, it would be anywhere from um, two hours to four hours, depending upon the location where we are operating. And how soon afterward would the patient recognize a difference? You know, some seizures uh, as a temporal lobe epilepsy from, from something called as an hippocampal sclerosis. Uh, immediately after surgery, the next day, the, uh, the patient should see a difference as there are no seizures, they feel a difference. And in some, in some other parts of the brain, it can take a couple of months before they see a benefit from the seizure surgery. Now, are there minimally invasive options for doing this surgery? There are. Uh, so, uh, you know, which surgery and what surgery is, uh, is best for a patient depends upon the risks and benefits for each procedure. Some patients, you know, the risk of doing an open surgery may be much higher. In those cases, we would recommend them doing this minimally invasive uh, procedure, which is putting uh, either a catheter or a small, you know, small electrode down and then, and then sort of doing in what we call as a laser, using a laser to quote unquote, burn the tissue that is causing seizures. In other patients, we may try doing some radio, radio surgery, which is, you know, sort of burning the tissue again, but using radiation to do it. Now, there is no one, one treatment for everybody. Each patient is treated and in where they're exactly the seizures coming from, how the brain function associated to the seizure area is that decides on what exact modality of treatment would be best for them. And we would, we would generally lay out all these to the patients and, and they definitely have, have a role in deciding what surgery they would like to go for and what are the benefits for them. Well, that's really, really good to know. Very informative. Thank you so much to Dr. Harish Babu. He's an assistant professor of neurosurgery and also the director of minimally invasive neurosurgery at Upstate and a member of Upstate's comprehensive epilepsy center team. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Kidney transplants have continued even during the pandemic. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 
Upstate University Hospital recently completed its 1,000th kidney transplant. And here to talk about the transplant service and the need for kidney donors is Professor of Surgery and Interim Chief of Transplant Services, Dr. Mark Laftavi. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Laftavi. Thank you, Amber. It's a pleasure to uh, be with you. So the 1,000th, we're talking about deceased donor transplants, and that took place in mid-December 2020. What can you tell us about that transplant? Well, just to uh, update you with the data, Upstate uh, almost have done uh, 1,500 kidney transplant uh, since 1988. Uh, the program has been here for 51 years, but we don't have data from those days. The most published data start from 1988. And since then, we have done uh, about 1,000 deceased donor and uh, 400 uh, living donor kidney transplant, and we have done pancreas transplant. So the program have a very extensive experience in performing kidney and pancreas transplant uh, for many years. And you know, transplant is a teamwork and it's not only uh, the surgeon or the uh, physicians are involved, but the whole hospital need to be trained, the, the whole system need to be trained. So hospitals that have a good record and long record that everybody is familiar with the transplant uh, normally uh, provide a better service to their patients than those that have done few transplants. So on top of the thousand that Upstate has done, there have been about 400 living donor transplants. So in general, how many transplants are done per year at Upstate? Well, uh, the transplant program uh, was uh, small before, uh, but uh, the last actually we did about 570 transplants within the last uh, five, six years. So average, uh, we do about 100 transplants here. Uh, uh, in 2018, we performed about 115 transplants. Uh, and uh, in six years ago, Upstate decided to expand their uh, transplant program. And therefore, uh, we doubled and tripled the transplant number here at Upstate since then. Has the pandemic slowed down or had a big impact on the number of transplants in the past year? Yes, it did. Uh, actually, many programs in the United States uh, dropped uh, by 25 to 75% of their transplant volume during the pandemic because, you know, this uh, is uh, um, a certain time, particularly at the beginning, we did not know about the virus and we did not know a lot of information about how it uh, progressed in a people who are immune compromised, where their immune system is low. Uh, but uh, uh, knocking on the wood, and thanks to our uh, entire family in, at Upstate, our number did not drop significantly from uh, the year before, and uh, we uh, completed the same number as, as uh, 2019. So the 1,000th deceased donor transplant took place in mid-December 2020. What can you tell us about the transplant program at Upstate? Our data now, uh, we are uh, good uh, outcomes, uh, mostly at the national level, slightly better than the national level, actually. But I want to recognize uh, many colleagues uh, before me here that they uh, actually, uh, on their shoulder, that this program was built, and many very giant uh, transplant surgeons and leaders in our program, that this program grow and reach to this level and thanks to them that uh, and based on their legacy that we build this program. Can you tell us about some of the changes that have occurred with kidney transplants over the past 50 years? I'm sure there's been a lot of advances. Certainly, you know, the surgery improved tremendously. Our understanding from the immunology of transplant improved tremendously. Uh, when I started to uh, 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 perform kidney transplant, uh, the immunology of transplant was really maybe 10 pages. Now it's thousands of pages that uh, we know about how the immune system react to the new organs. Uh, by the way, I, I myself have done more than 1500 kidney transplant in my life. So uh, we had this experience and uh, we uh, 
uh, now understand the medication better. Uh, first days when we started, uh, indeed, the rejection rate was very high. It was almost like 50%. In, in majority of the transplant program, now rejection is less than 10%. In our program, the same. Our rejection rate is very low. So there was a lot of advance in the medication. Also, in the old days, we had one or two medications, and if we don't, if the patient develops some side effect to them, um, they have to lose their organs. But now we have many uh, different medications that easy we can switch from one to another one. So it gives us more uh, abilities to uh, to accept actually uh, uh, high risk organs and high risk uh, patients. In old days, we would not transplant people unless they are in a good shape. Now, we certainly at Upstate, particularly, we accept many patients that they are considered to be very high risk for transplant, and we transplant them here successfully with a good outcome. Uh, for how long have living donor transplants been uh, an option? Living donor actually was the first transplant done by Dr. Murray and. Boston, uh, that was from uh, identical twins. At that days, uh, they were doing only living donors, and then the deceased donor was added. So the transplant actually started with living donor. Interesting. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking to Dr. Mark Loftavi, the Interim Chief of Transplant Services at Upstate University Hospital. So let me ask you, I want to look ahead. How do you think kidney transplant may evolve in the next 50 years? There is a lot of work has been done indeed. Uh, you know, where we start to even grow a kidney. Uh, there is uh, a lot of effort on that because of the shortage of the organ. As you know, still every year, 6,700 people in the United States die uh, because of the shortage of organs. We cannot transplant them. And that's a big number. So, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a big hassle still exists uh, regarding the shortage of the organs. And for that reason, um, just, uh, I want to emphasize on the living donors because if we have a beloved one that needs a kidney, we should not hesitate to help uh, him or her. And uh, because there is not enough organs that we transplant people here at Upstate, we almost have 370 patients still waiting for a kidney transplant. And nationalwide, uh, we have about 100,000 patients waiting for a kidney transplant. So uh, uh, we start to grow uh, probably organs. There is another effort also in xenotransplant, what we call it, it means that we can use animal organs in a human. Uh, some of them from the pig, and there was something they called them transgenic uh, uh, organs that maybe sometime they can introduce the gene of the human to some animals and uh, make it like a chimerism or a hybrid of organs that the body uh, will, will accept and do the same function. Uh, there is uh, also uh, one of the major things that we were part of here is the medication that we use uh, to um, uh, to uh, manage the rejection, which all this medication themselves, they have their own side effect. And up to 30 to 40% of patients may develop serious side effect from the medication. So we are working, uh, the Transplant Society working on a, a something called tolerance. Uh, like in bone marrow transplant, when we give the bone marrow transplant after five, six months, we stop the medications. In this protocol that we were part of, it was a multi-center study and Upstate was part of, uh, we can use the donor uh, bone marrow uh, uh, stem cells. And uh, we, 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 get, we gather the stem cells when we gather some cells from the donors and we inject them to the recipient. And we kind of uh, building some mix uh, or what we call it chimerism, mix uh, immune system that is the mix of the donor and the recipient immune system or uh, uh, white blood cells. And those cells normally uh, uh, fail to recognize the new graft because they are part of the donor. And uh, after uh, six months, uh, we can stop the medication so the patient does not need 
any immunosuppression anymore. That would be a big revolution in, in, in the transplant field because uh, this drug that we use, as I said, uh, they are not uh, benign and sometimes we have to pay a big price. So that would be huge if uh, the person that got the transplant then later on didn't need medication. It would be like starting over like new almost, it sounds like. Absolutely. That certainly will be a great achievement. And that is the hope that uh, of the Transplant Society uh, uh, that we can get rid of these uh, drugs. As you know, uh, these medications uh, not only, uh, uh, you know, reduce your immune system, patient on transplant, they will be more also prone to infections, uh, particularly viral infections, cancers, and so forth. So, uh, and they are costly too, like about $1,000 uh, cost per month. So uh, that I think uh, uh, would be a great uh, advantage to many patients that, uh, and we are, we are following that, we're still part of this study, and hopefully we can expand it later on to most of our patients. Now, once a person's on the transplant waiting list, do you always suggest that they try to find a friend or relative who might be willing to donate for a living donation? Absolutely. Um, living donors have uh, many advantages. Um, one, it's, uh, I always bring this uh, simple example, like a brand new car and used car. Living donors are like a brand new car, so we expect them to work better and we expect them to work longer. And uh, uh, we need less medication because rejection also is lower in these kind of kidneys. And normally, if you are healthy and um, and have no other uh, medical uh, issues, uh, um, if you donate a kidney, uh, it should not compromise your general health. Uh, therefore, nobody should hesitate to save the life of a brother or sister or family or a friend. Yeah, does let me interrupt and ask you, does blood type have to match? Is that what you're looking for when you're looking for a, a match? No, we do have a protocol here at Upstate that actually uh, we can use this kind of organs. There are many strategies, whether uh, from desensitization or whether from a swap. So uh, if there is a healthy donors, there will be a transplant. And uh, that's not... And, like if your uh, blood type is not the same, that doesn't matter. What about size, like body size or organ size? No, it's, you know, certainly size matters in some part, but living donors have a good reserve. So uh, we still use kidneys up to 70 years old. And uh, um, when it comes from a living donors, because they are healthy organs, and we do very extensive testing here before we accept these donors. We are very sensitive to do uh, a lot of work uh, from not only from medical, but psychological and other aspects of the donations. And after being uh, ensured that this is safe for the donors and for the recipient, we accept these donors. So it's a very extensive uh, uh, examinations and testing and all these things uh, before we accept those uh, as a, uh, those individuals as a donors. Do diseases like if a, if a donor has um, or someone who wants to donate, if they've had cancer in the past, does that disqualify them? No, if the cancer has been remission and cancer was, uh, you know, uh, 10 years uh, and it has not been recurrence or any sign of recurrence, I think that should be fine. But people that like have diabetes, people who have a heart condition, uh, vascular disease, those people probably are not the candidate. But I think is the best is to, if anybody want to save their family, they give us a call and first things, we just talk to them briefly by the phone. We screen them uh, easily. And after very, you know, five, six questions, no more than that. Uh, we will let them know if they are eligible or not. Thank you to Dr. Mark Loftavi, a surgeon and interim chief of transplant services at Upstate University Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Skinny Atlas poet Pam Freeman gives us the chance to, yes, recognize how life can seem so hopeless and so frustrating, but also how a common miracle can appear, a photo from the past, and suddenly we are reminded there is goodness yet to celebrate and yet to come. Here is the dance of all. The dance of all I cannot fix, all the cancer, all the dirty tricks, all the missing man formations, all the charging light brigades, every tender plan bleaching in a shallow grave leaves me legless with exhaustion amid this parasitic ticking masquerade. Yet in the kindergarten classroom photograph, peering closely I discover like gilded peewee saints posing for a fresco, 20 nose pickers, snackers, geniuses, and nappers, each child securely haloed against an uncertain future, the group aglow like a landing strip for angels, which it is. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what you need to know about pancreatic cancer. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe, with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith. Thanking you for listening.